your Bibles and turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, as we've heard that uh, passage uh, read this morning, and we'll be looking at these verses, verses 45 through 56 in Matthew chapter 27. The title of our message this morning is, Jesus Christ is Forsaken. Jesus Christ is Forsaken. Yonder amazing sight I see, the incarnate Son of God, expiring on the cursed tree and weltering in His blood. Behold a purple torrent run down His hands and head. The crimson tide puts out the sun, His groans awake the dead. The trembling earth, the darkening sky, proclaim the truth aloud, and with the amazed centurion cry, This is the Son of God. So great, so vast a sacrifice may well my hope revive. If God's own Son thus bleeds and dies, the sinner sure must live, or may live. Oh, that these cords of love divine might draw me, Lord, to thee. Thou hast my heart, it shall be thine, thine it shall ever be. In these verses here before us this morning, we have Matthew's account of our Savior's last three hours of agony upon the cursed tree. The last three hours of torture He endured for us as our substitute because He was made sin for us. This inspired narrative should always be read with reverence, with hearts broken over sin, and yet rejoicing at the forgiveness of sin obtained at such a price. And so may God the Holy Spirit sanctify our hearts and our eyes and our minds as we attempt to uh, think about and to meditate upon the Lord's suffering and to worship Him who suffered all of hell of God's holy wrath for us. And after suffering the wrath of God as our substitute in His body, in His soul, and in His spirit, The Lord Jesus Christ became obedient unto death and yielded up the ghost. And everything in these verses is simply remarkable. It's utterly amazing. And so we want to consider six great and wonderful truths this morning. Number one is the darkness. In verse 45 it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land unto the ninth hour. First of all, Matthew calls our attention to the remarkable darkness that covered the land. This was not a natural solar eclipse. If it was an eclipse, it was a supernatural one. An eclipse specifically performed by God on this occasion. I don't know if it was an eclipse or not. Uh, We, uh, you know, in thinking about this, you might think, you know, an eclipse, you know, you could kind of see some light around the edges. Uh... It says there was darkness over the whole land. And it was in the middle of the day. There was an eclipse that the prophet Amos prophesied. It said, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear sky. And it lasted for three hours. It was attested to by men in other parts of the world who had no idea what was going on in Jerusalem. One fellow by the name of Dionysius, who lived in Egypt at the time, said this. He said, either the divine being suffers, or suffers with him that suffers, or the frame of the world is dissolving. 
It's a remarkable darkness that came over the earth, lasting for three hours. And from high noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, the, the sun, in a sense, refused to shine. And the Lord gives a vivid, symbolic display of four particular things that this uh, would indicate to us, this darkness. Number one is the terrible crime committed, the terrible crime. The darkness covering the land indicates the terribleness of the crime being committed. Wicked men were murdering the Lord of glory. Though our Savior died and was slaughtered by the hands of wicked men, exactly according to the purpose, will, and decree of God for salvation of sinners, God decrees did in no way excuse their sin in crucifying Him. There's the terrible crime committed. Secondly, notice this darkness represents the blindness of men's hearts. The darkness indicated the blackness, the darkness, the blindness of men's heart by nature. No impression was made upon these men, though God performed miracles unheard of before or since all around them. And the fact is, man's heart by nature is so blind that no acts of providence, either goodness or in judgment, can be seen by him unless God takes the scales off of his eyes. Thirdly, we find the emptiness of the Christless religion. The emptiness of a Christless religion. Surely this darkness was designed to declare the emptiness and the darkness of the Christless religion. Judaism. Judaism had just become ritualism. As much as such, it was altogether darkness. And as matters not, whatever religion it is, if it's a religion without Christ, it's a religion without life, without faith. And it's darkness, no matter how orthodox it appears. And then fourthly, this darkness that passed upon our Savior. The darkness covering the earth was reflective of the darkness that passed upon and engulfed our Savior's soul. And when he was made sin for us. And when the light of the world was made sin, darkness flooded the world as darkness flooded his soul. And so we see the darkness. Secondly... We notice Christ forsaken. In verse 46, it says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the second great truth, I believe, we see here. As the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to record the fact that the Lord Jesus was forsaken by the Father. Again, about the ninth hour, that's about three o'clock in the afternoon, which was about the time of the slaying and the offering of the daily sacrifice, which was an intimate type of Christ. Jesus cried with a loud voice as one in great distress. In great darkness for three hours, he had been silent and patiently bearing all the torment of his father's furious wrath and utter abandonment and all the assaults of, of hell. Who can imagine in anguish of his soul? At last he breaks out with that terrible cry of agony, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And here our Savior speaks as a man. A man chosen, made, ordained, anointed by the Lord God with oil of gladness above his fellows. 
As a man, our Lord was upheld and strengthened by the Father, just as we are. As a man, he trusted God, loved Him, prayed to Him, just as we do. Only he did so perfectly and without sin. And though now the Father hid his face from him, still he expresses strong faith in him and love for him. When he's said to be forsaken of God, the meaning is not that he was separated from the love of God and did not know the reason for his abandonment. But our surety now stood in our place bearing our sins and he therefore had to endure abandonment by God the Father, to satisfy justice. And this cry that we hear here, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, expresses the very soul of his sufferings as our substitute. And indeed, all the wails and the howls of the damned in hell to all eternity will fall infinitely short of expressing the evil and the bitterness of sin. But here we see how vile a thing sin is. When God found our sin upon His beloved Son, He forsook Him in wrath. Whenever He read these, we read these words, whenever we hear them, whenever we think about them, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We ought to immediately be reminded that the Lord our God is infinitely holy and just. And as such, He must and will punish all sin. And our souls should be flooded with the anticipation or the appreciation of God's infinite love, indescribable, everlasting, saving love for us. I want you to notice something about Christ being forsaken. First of all, He was utterly forsaken. Utterly forsaken. These words of our Savior when He hung on the tree as our substitute when he knew no uh, he who knew no sin was made sin for us made the righteousness of God in him at the apex of his obedience at a time of his greatest sorrow in the hour of his greatest need the Lord cried to his father now if we would go back to Psalm 22 where the Holy Spirit gives us the agonizing cries of our Redeemer in greater detail prophetically Find him answering his own heart-rending cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roarings, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Psalm 22, 1 and 2. How utterly forsaken he was. So utterly forsaken the father refused to hear the cries of his beloved son in the hour of his greatest needs. Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. I read those words, and again, I'm astonished. I'm amazed. I cannot attempt to even explain what I cannot imagine this morning. But these things were written here for our learning, that we might through patience and consolation of the Scriptures have hope. And I hang all my hope on this fact. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ was made sin for us, He was utterly forsaken by God and put to death as my substitute And by His one great sin-atoning sacrifice, He has forever 
put away my sins. He not only bore our sins in his body on the tree, but he bore them away. He was utterly forsaken. But notice the reason. Again, in Psalm 22, in verse 3, our Holy Savior, when he was made sin for us, answers the cry of his own soul's agony. He cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But then he says, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Why was the Lord Jesus forsaken by the Father when he was made sin for us? Because the holy Lord God is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. Our Savior was forsaken by the Father when he was made sin for us because justice demanded it. Thou art pure uh, of pure eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. It says in Habakkuk 1.13. Here he was dying under the wrath of God. Our great substitute justified God in his own condemnation because he was made sin for us. He proclaims the holiness of God in the midst of his agony. He is so pure, so holy, so righteous, so just that he will try by no means to clear the guilty even when the guilty one is his own beloved son. Rather than his own, uh, rather than his holy character be slighted, our surety must suffer and die because he was made sin for us. Our Savior had no sin of his own. He was born without original sin, being even from birth that holy one, says in Luke 1.35. And throughout his life, he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And he did no sin, 1 Peter 2, 22. And in him is no sin, 1 John 3 and verse 5. But on Calvary, the Holy Lord God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And just as in the incarnation, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, In substitution, he was made flesh and was made sin for us. I do not know how God could be made flesh and never cease to be God. I don't understand that completely, but he was. I'm going to take him at his word. That's what his word tells me. I do not know how God could die and never yet die, but he did. I do not know how Christ, who knew no sin, could be made sin and yet never have sinned. But he was. These things are mysteries beyond the reach of human comprehension. But they are facts of divine revelation to which we should bow in adoration. Now verse 47 here in Matthew 27 says, Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth Elias. When the darkness covered them, they were apparently terrified and silent. But as soon as it was light again, their fear abated and they resumed their derision of the Son of God. Christ, our Passover, uh, was now being roasted in the fire of God's holy wrath. And when he cried, I thirst, they gave him vinegar to drink. We read in verses 48 and 49, And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. He thirsted and drank the bitter vinegar of divine justice that we might drink the water of life 
and never thirst. And so then, thirdly, we come to a self-inflicted death. Verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. The Spirit of God here reminds us that our blessed Savior died a remarkable self-inflicted death. His strength was not abated. His word was not the gasping breath of a failing life, but the triumphant shout of a conquering king. The Son of God voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep. He did not lose his spirit. He dismissed it. His work was finished. His life was complete. Therefore, he laid down as a voluntary surety, vicarious sufferer, a victorious savior. It's exactly how he said he would die. Over in John 10, verse 14, he said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And the Spirit of God emphasizes the fact that our Savior cried with a loud voice. He did not speak as an exhausted, beaten man, but as a conqueror in the field of battle, carrying away the spoils of his conquest. He cried aloud that all the earth, all of heaven and all of hell might hear, it is finished. What was finished? Well, redemption's work was finished. The law's curse was finished. Death and hell and grave were vanquished. Someone has written the most glorious views of that life and immortality which Christ first brought to light by his gospel were seen from the hill of Calvary. Brighter than Moses saw the heights of Pisgah, of the promised land, and that song was sung in heaven which the beloved apostle heard in vision. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. And so, fourthly, we come to the divine testimonies. The Lord performed several startling divine testimonies, declaring that this one who died at Calvary more than 2,000 years ago is indeed the Christ of God. Look at verse 51. Verse 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints were slept which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection unto the holy city and appeared unto many. Anyone who considers the miracles that were performed by God's providence at this time must recognize, as the centurion did, that this man was the Son of God. The miracles wrought by God as his son laid down his life for us, seemed to say, these are my witnesses, these are my testimonies, testifying who I am and what I have accomplished. There was the veil of the temple rent in two pieces from the top to the bottom because the Son of God had now opened a way of access to God by his blood. There was the earthquake and the rending of the rocks were celebrations of this glorious event. And then, There was the opening of the graves and the resurrected bodies of the saints 
were unmistakably displays of wonders and redemption and salvation by the death of Jesus Christ. These resurrected saints were visible demonstrations of Christ's quickening power, whereby he shall raise our vile bodies, make them like his glorified, spiritual, immortal, and glorious body. By the death of Christ for us, death is swallowed up in victory. Now we mentioned the centurion already, but we notice number five, the centurion's confession. Matthew records a remarkable confession made by our Savior's tormentors. Verse 54. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And as the centurion was compelled to confess by all the things he saw and heard on that infamous glorious day, this man was the Son of God. And soon, in the great day of wrath, all shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Now I want you to notice one more great truth, and that is exemplary women. We see many faithful, loyal, exemplary women beholding our Savior. Verse 55 and 56. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Notice the word beholding. And we need to find our place with these women and behold Christ crucified for us. Behold Him afflicted in His body, in His soul, and in His heart, that He might undo our affliction. Behold Him wounded for us, that we might never be wounded. Behold Him made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Behold him put to shame for us that we might never be put to shame. And behold him dying for us that we might never die. We need to behold how he loved us. Sons of peace redeemed by blood, raise your songs to Zion's God. May from condemnation free, grace triumphant sing with me. Calvary's wonders let us trace, justice magnified in grace. Mark the purple streams and say, thus my sins were washed away. Wrath divine, no more we dread, vengeance smote our surety's head. Legal claims are fully met, Jesus paid the dreadful debt. Sin is lost beneath the flood, drowned in the Redeemer's blood. Zion, oh, how blessed art thou, justified From all things now. Six great truths this morning. First, Matthew calls our attention to the remarkable darkness that covered the land. Second, we see here is the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to record the fact that the Lord Jesus was forsaken by his Father. And thirdly, the Spirit of God reminds us that our blessed Savior died a remarkable self-inflicted death. Number four, 
the Lord performed several startling divine testimonies, declaring that this one who died at Calvary more than 2,000 years ago is indeed the Christ of God. Fifth, Matthew records a remarkable confession made by one of the Savior's tormentors, the centurion. And number six, we see many faithful, loyal, exemplary women beholding their Savior. You know, there is no story like this story. And it's not just a story, is it? It's just not a bedtime story. It's not just a nice story to read to your children. But it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful account. It's the truth of God's word as hope for a lost and dying world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's bow in prayer.